I'll do our best to try to understand the new world we live in. So in that case, um, I'm going to go ahead and open up in, again a word of prayer, and uh, we'll go ahead and get started. So um, pray with me if you can. Dear Heavenly Father, we love you and we thank you. And Lord, I know that um, although I may not be the master of technology, you are. And Father, I know that your message transcends anything that we can possibly do. Father, I ask that you will guide and encourage us as we seek to honor and to serve and to do what you call us to do. And Lord, as we open up this time of, of um, worship through reading your word and expositing the scripture, we ask that you will open up our understanding, allow us to truly be immersed in your word and your will. And we love you and we thank you. We ask this now in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. So is our cameraman, are we acceptable now or can we move forward? Um, so I'm going to ask my wife, Sandy, if she can look on the comments that are floating up on the screen that I can't see, uh, just to make sure. Is it, are, we, are we doing the right thing? Is it moving in the right direction? Yeah, it says you can't hear either. Oh, uh, we can't hear. So, I don't know. Yeah, about... it isn't sideways. And Turn it up. Turn it up. Yeah. Okay. So... Thank you, Miss Robin. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Miss Robin. So, we appreciate it. Um, I'm just going to be, as, I'll be a little louder, and hopefully... I, maybe I get a little closer to the video. Sandy, can you tell me if I'm too close? Um, and so maybe, yep. the, okay, there we go. We'll try it that way, and hopefully it's as loud as, as we can be. We've, we've, we've gotten on the, uh, the microphones, and man, I tell you, gotta love technology, right? Um, I, I'm looking forward to when we can get back together, and we can be part of, of church to, to, as, a, as, a, as a body. Um, I tell you, it's going to be exciting when we finally are able to, to cut the ribbon, if you will, and to, I know, and just enjoy it. And I tell you, I'm, I'm just going to say, when we get the chance to come back, we need to celebrate the fact that we're back. We need to celebrate the fact that we're in uh, the building. We need to have a party. We need to we need to have a potluck. We need to be able to do what Baptists love to do, which is chow down on the gospel and then chow down on some food. And I'm just going to put it out there. I'm going to bring the uh, uh, I'm going to bring the uh, the banana pudding. So there we go. I'm going to make some some really good banana pudding because it's not a Baptist church. With a, with a potluck without banana pudding. So, I, we're done with the stuff. Let's get in with the meat and the Word of God. Um, and Brother Phil, if you can just turn that down just a little bit. It's a little echoey for me, and, and I just it's going to throw me way off. So, yeah, there we go. That, that probably is about as good as it's going to be. All right, guys, if, you're in, if you have your Bibles, open up to the book of Joel, chapter 2. Um, we're going to begin... I'm not going to read the entire chapter to you. I'm going to read um, uh, the first few verses, and then we're going to we're going to read more as we progress through this message. Uh, I think it's important that as we as we do this um, and we walk through the scriptures together, that we read these together as they were intended, as we're following along and understanding. Um, so in that light, um, we started off talking about Joel and the fact that this particular book was um, was one of the more uh, interesting. Of the Old Testament prophets, we're talking three chapters here. The Hebrew Bible has four. Um, they have a little tiny chapter right in the middle, um, where chapter three is. Their chapter three is, is just tiny, and a lot of people overlook the Book of Joel because they don't understand it. Because he starts off talking about locusts, he starts off talking about invading armies, and you're not sure if this is about a locust plague or if this is about a, um, an, uh, an invasion that's coming in. You're just sort of confused, and then in verse chapter two, he rolls into it. Uh, just he takes that metaphor and expands it, and so it makes it difficult. And, and so, before we even begin to go any further, we just need to remember, as we said the last time we were in the Book of Joel, is that when you're reading Hebrew prophecy, you have to understand that there are rules that were put into place by God and prophets of old on how to read prophecy. And the first thing you need to understand is that it's written in metaphor, it's written in simile, it's written in allegory. And so we're reading about locusts, but what we're really reading about is invading armies that are coming to destroy what God has put into place. And ultimately, nothing takes God by surprise. And so I want you to understand as we're reading through this that this is a lot of simile, a lot of metaphor, a lot of allegory. Uh, prophets did this of old many times. Preachers do it today. We love to use illustrations to bring out messages. 
And you'll see we'll do that a little bit as we go through this. So starting in chapter 2, verse 1, just follow along as I read this to you guys. Blow the trumpet in Zion and sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. Surely it is near. A day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. As the dawn is spread over the mountains, so there is a great and mighty people. There has never been anything like it, nor will there be again after it. To the years of many generations, a fire consumes before them, and behind them a flame burns. The land is like the garden of Eden before them, but behind them a desolate wilderness, and nothing at all escapes them. Do you hear the figurative language that the prophet is using? That the, the, the Holy Spirit is, is driving this message through this man as he is trying to give us an understanding of what's happening. He's telling us that, that the world is, is, is shifting, it's changing. The day of the Lord is at hand. And I know, well, how can the prophet Joel, written you know, so many thousand years ago, how can that possibly be relevant today? Well, as we go through this, you're going to see it's incredibly relevant to today. Not to mention, we, last week we had Easter Sunday. And Easter Sunday was a powerful moment. And if you know your Bible, you know that after Jesus rose again from the grave um, on that beautiful, blessed Sunday, he had many encounters over the next 40 days with the disciples. And after that 40-day mark, he ascended into heaven. And before he left of Mount of Olives, he told his disciples, go back to Jerusalem and wait for the Spirit to come upon you. Wait for the Holy Spirit, the Comforter to come. And they went back to the upper room, and there was a bunch of them there, and they were praying. And for about 10 days, they just stood in prayer, focused on asking God what's next. Now that this has all happened, now that this revolution has been started, now that this kingdom is at hand, and, and now that this is all going to take place, what do we do now? And then the day of Pentecost occurs. And, pre and the Holy Spirit comes down, and the apostles are filled. The, the, the fires and like tongues sort of clothe them. The great rushing sound, all this happens. They gather together near the temple. They start preaching the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And thousands of people come to know Christ as their Savior. And the church was born. And in that, the, 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 the apostle Peter spoke, and he quoted from the book of Joel. He quoted from this chapter that we're going to get to near the end. He's asking for, they were asking for the Holy Spirit to come begin the church. We're now at a place where we're asking the Holy Spirit to do something. To do something mighty and powerful so that we might be able to see His hand moving through us. And so this is what it is. The day of the Lord is at hand. And surely it's going to come. And we should be very careful about this. Look what it says. Blow a trumpet in Zion. Sound an alarm. That whole idea of, of a horn being blown. It was, it, was like, it was like a town bell. Now, I know some of you guys... You know, never, never traveled beyond the scope of your own area. And I know we have people that, that watch this video from as far away as Europe and as close as right around the corner. And so I know that, that many of us have a variety of, of backgrounds. And some of you that have traveled know that in, in, in medieval Europe, they didn't have horns so much that called the congregation in or sound one. They had church bells. And it's interesting, back in those days, they would actually build the entire town around the church. There were actually rules and laws still in place in France and Belgium and, and England and other places that, that no building can be built higher than the church steeple. So that whenever somebody enters into a town, the first thing they see is the cross on that steeple rising above the center of that town. So that everybody knows where the town center was. And they would always align the church toward the cardinal points of the compass. And people would actually draw lines from the church so they knew where to be able to, 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 to mark north and south and east and west. I had an opportunity uh, to do a, a vacation Bible school in a small little town in Suffolk County, England called Holbrook. And so if my, my good friend John from uh, England is watching, I, I, and I know you've watched a couple of videos in the past, I 
I just want to do a shout out to a town that you and I um, cared very deeply for. And I remember sitting there and having having dinner with a family um, who worked closely with one of the churches in town, one of the oldest churches in town. And it was his job to ring the bell. And he took me and my daughter Rebecca to the actual um, church. We went up into the belfry, and we got a chance to actually see the bell, the bell that was cast and, and hung back in like the uh, I want to say the 1700s. And so this was the actual bell that was put in place that was part of the founding of this town. And he would tell me, he said, "There's more to it than just ringing the bell to for church services. He had a certain number of bells that he was allowed to ring." For certain things. And if there was a flood, he knew exactly how many times he had to ring that bell. If there was going to be an invading army of Vikings, he knew exactly how many times to ring that bell. Now, granted, in 21st century America or in England, there is no more invading Vikings, but he still had to memorize that when he was learning how to be the bellman for the church. And it was just kind of fun to be able to be there. He would ask if we wanted to give it a tug and let it ring. Um, and, and, of course, we had to wait to the right time when the church was going to have a service. And, and my daughter, I think, had a chance to, to pull the bell a little bit and let it ring. But it was fun. And it was interesting to see that. But the idea here is that towns then, now, we always have ways to be able to send that, that clarion call out. That the invading forces are in. Um, in the early days of the war, uh, uh, in World War II, we had the air raid sirens and other things, so ways to, to announce to the community that danger is approaching. If you've ever been to the Midwest of America, they still have tornado sirens uh, that will go off. My wife um, was stationed in Oklahoma when she was in the Navy for, for a brief period of time, and, and she mentioned to me about the tornado sirens that would go off every, every once in a while, telling them that it was time to get undercover, and that's what this, this bell and this, these, these horns that we're talking about was to sound the alarm because the, we need to let them know that the presence of the Lord is coming. And this horn is, is announcing it, that the day of the Lord is at hand. You know, the sad part is, is that we don't fear the Lord anymore. We really don't. We have, we have lost our fear of God as a congregation, as, as a group of individuals. And I think it's, it's to our detriment, obviously, because the Bible says the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. But we've lost that. We have, we have pastors that are preaching uh, anything but the gospel. We have, uh, we have teachers that aren't teaching from the Word of God, from their own experience, from the knowledge and the depth of understanding God's Word. We have church members that don't even understand why they're even in a building. Um, I was talking to one of our church members not too long ago about the fact that, that we are now two or three generations away from even understanding what denominations are for. If I ask any given day, any given church member on any given Sunday what it, what it means to be Baptist, I guarantee you most people aren't going to be able to really articulate it. They're not going to be able to tell you what it means to be a Baptist or to be a Presbyterian or a Pentecostal. We just don't have that anymore. We've lost our understanding and our identity, and we've lost our fear of the Lord. That allows people to sin any way they want. And so we see that the day of darkness and gloom, it says in verse 2, the dawn is, as the dawn is spreading over the mountains, you notice the imagery here. It's this, it's this incremental malignancy as these clouds are starting to spread. The enemy is starting to spread. There isn't a section of our country, not a section of our society, that this evil isn't spreading to. We see this oftentimes. And Joel is sort of drawing the two ideas together of the idea that the Lord is descending and coming and this day of darkness, the day of the Lord is, is arriving, but yet there's this malignant spread of evil that's across the land. And we see this flowing through the first ten, nine or so verses of this particular um, chapter, chapter 2. And we see this, right? You see verses 8 and 9, we're talking about the enemies that are coming. In verse 7 it says they, they run like mighty men. They climb the walls like soldiers. They march in line. They don't deviate from their paths. You know, it's interesting how the, we may be scattered, the army of the Lord. We're not always together. We're not always focused. We compartmentalize so much in, 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 into different denominational barriers that, that it's hard for us to come together as a unified body the way that we're supposed to and answer some of these challenges. But it's amazing to me how the enemy almost moves in lockstep 
every single time you see the enemy moving, it's like they, his agents, they know the message, and they stay on point. They don't deviate from it. Whether they believe it themselves personally, we don't know, but they don't deviate from the message. Look what it says in verse 8. It says they don't crowd each other. They march, everyone in his own path, and they burst through the defenses. Look, look what it says in verse, um, the final part of verse 8, moving into verse 9. They do not break ranks. They rush on the city. They run on the wall. They climb into the houses. You know, this was written not to first century America, or I mean 20th century America. This was written to first century world that was very familiar with the Roman Empire. Well, not the, sorry, the Greek Empire, and then led into the Roman Empire. This was written to a group of people that, that understood what it was to fight and wage war. Now, think about this for a minute. When you say they did not break ranks, you know, the strength of the Greek army, what allowed the Greek army to, do, to hold their territory against even, you know, uh, armies that were three and four and five and sometimes ten times their size was their failings, was their ability to, to put themselves together, to lock their shields. The Roman Empire built themselves around a legion of soldiers that were so disciplined they could lock their shields together, lock their shields over their heads, and they could move as almost like an armored turtle into battles. They were the tank of the day. And so when, when the prophet is using this imagery, he's telling us that these are overwhelming forces that are coming against us. At least that's the way they perceive themselves. But then he, changed, he shifts focus in verse 10. And he goes into a different direction. He says, Before then the earth quakes, the heavens tremble, the sun and the moon grow dark, the stars lose their brightness. But here it is, the Lord utters his voice before his army. Surely his camp is very great, for strong is he who carries out his word. The day of the Lord indeed is great and terrible and very awesome. Who can endure it? So you see that the enemy has their forces arrayed against us, but then the Lord has his army as well. And this is something that we need to understand, is that when these days come, when, these, when, these, when the darkness starts to bring about um, uh, the winds of change, when, when the world starts to pull against everything we hold sacred and holy, like we're facing now, we're, getting, we're shifting away from, from being what we had before to being something totally different. I read a wonderful post that one of our, our folks from uh, the convention here in Alaska uh, posted on Facebook the other day. It was 20 questions. It was by Jimmy Stewart. I encourage you to look on his uh, page, page. You'll be able to see it. Jimmy Stewart was asking 20 questions. 20 questions that we need to ask ourselves before we start coming back together again. And they're good questions, and I encourage you to read them. Yeah, the answers, some of the answers there, a lot of this is open-ended. The one thing I'm seeing is that we're never really going to be back to the way it was. That these things are going to change us. Now, what does that mean? How is that going to shape us? I don't know. But one thing I've seen is that we've stripped away all the covering. We've stripped away all the things that are non-essential. And now we're asking things that are incredibly important and essential, such as how are we going to be church? I was out in the community yesterday. I was uh, briefly and distanced as well as I possibly could. So all of you don't have to worry about that. Um, but I was out in the community. I happened to see a fellow Christian who doesn't come to our church. Yeah, they have their own church. And, and he had mentioned something to me. He says, you know, we're no longer at a place where we can just do church. We're no longer at a church place where we can have church. We're now at a place where we are forced by God to define what it means to be church, right? That means every fiber of our being, we are called to be the church. And we're called to be the church today, on Sunday, and we're called to be the church Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, in whatever capacity that God has given us uh, within our sphere of influence to be the church to the community, to individuals, to our family, uh, to folks that are just concerned about where we are in the state of the world. And now we're at this place and we're going to ask ourselves, what do we do now? We've laid out that, that, that before you. The prophet's really good about that. He, he gives you 11 verses. He just throws it out there. He's like, it's bad, guys. It's as bad as I've ever seen it. The armies are, are, are railing against us. We're now, what, four or five weeks into this? We, we, I, haven't had a, I haven't had a congregation to sit down in this building in weeks. 
And we're asking ourselves, what are we going to do? How do we now live? Where do we now go? And that's where the prophet makes the shift, right? In verse 12, we begin to see the pivot beginning. We begin to learn how to react. And I think I've pulled out three different ways that we can, um, that we can react in a positive way to this. The first way, and the prophet I think talks about this, is, is that we don't fear. We don't have fear. We have faith. Oftentimes, we are responding. We see this in the world today, in the news, in our communities. We are responding from feelings and fears rather than faith and facts. And the prophet is trying to tell us that we're not to have fear, but have faith. And we're going to see that in a minute. And then he tells the next response we're supposed to have is an authentic repentance. I don't think that's happened yet. I don't think we're at that point where we as a people, because even now it's still too easy for us to do church, right? It's even easier for some of us. Now we get to go to church in our pajamas and not get critiqued or criticized. You know, uh, uh, several months ago, a year ago, two years ago, uh, if somebody were to walk on stage here in their pajamas and worship, they might, you might as well take them out back and stone them. But now, you can do that. We've actually made church easier. We're no longer having to work for it. When Sandy and I were uh, early in ministry, we went, uh, we both attended a seminary. Sandy got her associate's degree in, uh, in Christian education, and uh, I went on for a master's. And uh, one of the students that was in our program was, uh, he was, he worked for Voice of the Martyrs. And he was, he was a secret Bible agent. And he's retired now and long since doing that. And he had two areas that he focused on. And surprisingly enough, Cuba and China. I don't understand, other than communism, what Cuba and China had to do with each other. But he was a, a former Cuban national, and he was um, able to uh, speak the language very well. He understood the population and, and, and how to go. And, and he would wear a, a special suit to go down to Cuba. And he would fly into Cuba with a special suit that could hold like 20-something Bibles in different secret pockets all over. And he would go to these markets and he would deliver these Bibles in a secret sleight-of-hand kind of way. And he would go into the market with 20 Bibles in his suit and he would come out of the market with a suit with no Bibles, you know, as he was handing them out. And he would tell me about these great adventures and how secret police were always trying to follow him because and, and, they knew that he was an American. They knew that he was going to cause problems. They knew that, that he was um, uh, there to, to, to disrupt their way of life with, with God's Word. But he was still able, through the Holy Spirit's intervention, to be able to give out all the Bibles. And he made multiple journeys down there, so much so that, that, that his organization said, we need you to, to go to China. And he was involved in some in some really interesting work as he flew underneath radar in low-flying air, little airplanes and, and helicopters. And he would meet pastors that were out, that would walk for a week into the wilderness of China, into a secret location in order to receive just one copy of God's Word. And knowing the whole time that they were caught away from their village or with that Bible, they would be tortured to death for the names of the members of their church. I think sometimes we don't recognize just how good we have it, even with the technology and the disruption of our normal Christian life. We need to be mindful of that. And so our attention turns to chapter 12, I mean verse 12, um, as we move on in chapter 2. And it says, yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart. Look what he says there. He says, don't fear, have faith, return to me. With all of our heart. What did Jesus say when he was questioned about the greatest commandments? He said there's two. The first one is to love God with all your heart, mind, body, and soul. With all your strength. With everything that you are. With every fiber of your being. Love the Lord. And if that wasn't enough, he said, and here's one more for you guys. And once you think you got that one down, which you never will, by the way, then I've got this other commandment that's going to be almost impossible for you to do. And that's to love your neighbor as yourself. Wow. Those are powerful commandments. But you can see that echoed here. Return to me with all your heart. And then look at the response. The authentic repentance that's displayed by the prophet. He said, with fasting and weeping and mourning, rend your heart, not your garments. 
Now return to the Lord your God. Rend your heart, not your garments. So the response, when you say to me, how do we now respond to this, right? We have the president asking for a day of prayer. We have other organizations and other people in government asking for us to fast and pray. And I'm thankful that our government is doing that. But reality is, we don't have to wait for Donald Trump, President of the United States, to tell us that we need to pray. We ought to be telling him, guys, we're going to be praying. In fact, we're commanded in the New Testament to pray for our leaders, whether we like it or not. And I know we can get into a long discussion about whether or not we like the president or not. And I know there are people watching this um, uh, broadcast that are on both sides of the fence. But the reality is we need to love Jesus more than we love anything else. And we need to pray for our leaders that we have a peaceful life. We need to pray for our country. We need to pray for our time. And when disaster strikes, we need to respond with an authentic, prayerful response. Look what the prophet says. Rend your hearts, not your garments. Because when you return to the Lord, he says, he is gracious and compassionate. I love the way that it's written there in the English. Gracious and compassionate. When we think of the Lord being gracious and compassionate, and there's just a ton of scripture that, that, that draws that response out. That we, can, we can see examples of that from the book of Psalms to the Old Testament, all the way into the New Testament. The idea that he is Gracious, He is faithful. He is merciful. But if you look at the original Hebrew, it's actually something even more amazing. Because the words that the prophet used there are actually very very close in, in meaning. And the way that the, the rhyme happens. In the Hebrew, it's gracious is, is hunan. And in the, in the, in the Hebrew, compassionate is rahum. So hunan, rahum. They come together. But they mean more than just simple um, compassion. It's, it's, a, it's a depth of response that comes from the fiber of our being. And just like we can be gracious and compassionate towards our fellow man like God, like Jesus has commanded us, our Father is even more gracious and even more merciful and even more compassionate. And that when we respond the right way, he will respond to us. And that's what he's talking about right here. He says, um, you see that he is gracious, he is compassionate, he is slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. Oh my goodness. There's that word again, church. If you haven't heard me preach about this, you haven't heard me preach. I'm telling you now, there is the greatest single word in the Old Testament. The one word that you need to memorize in the, in the original Hebrew is the word chesed. Okay? It's spelled with an H or a C, but it's H or it's C-H or just H-E-S-E-D. Chesed. It, it, it literally is a covenantal, divine, responsive love. It's the kind of love that only God can have. It's the kind of love that we have when we bind ourselves to someone else. It's the kind of love that we're supposed to have in a marriage relationship. You know, I can't count the number of times over the years that I've had people come into my office and say, well, Pastor, I just can't live with him anymore. I'm not happy. She does this. She won't do that. He constantly does this. When can I be happy? Where does it say in Scripture that when you make a vow to love someone for the rest of their natural life, that you are allowed to find happiness. That's not the goal of this covenantal love. If that was the case, let me tell you something. If, if, if we had used that same uh, definition for the love that we have between God and ourselves, and he brings out, look what it says in, in later, in a little bit later, he talks about the bridegroom in verse 16 and the bride coming out of her bridal chamber. These are concepts that are being used in conjunction with this word chesed. When you, husband, you, wife, make a profound commitment before the Lord and all of your community that you will love, honor, and cherish an individual for the rest of their natural life, there is something there. There is something that binds you greater than your own desire for happiness. And I know this isn't a popular um, discussion because everybody's out there trying to get their best happiness, right? And I've said this before and I'll say it again. It's quite possible that every relationship you have, the good ones and the bad ones, it's not possible, it's a fact, that God is using those relationships to conform you to the image of Jesus Christ. 
And that means that the relationship you have with your spouse is there to conform you to the image of Jesus, not to make you happy. You can find joy and contentment in a marriage that's based upon God's Word. You can find joy and contentment Regardless of the circumstances around you, in a relationship with a holy and loving God, when you know that there is a covenantal bond, there is something that binds God to you and you to Him. He says in Jeremiah 31, 31, this new covenant that Jesus spoke about and we talked about last week is the idea that that covenantal love is so powerful, is so binding, is so amazing that it will it binds both of us together. He says in Jeremiah 31, 31, it says there will come a day when I will have my people, right? And I will write my name on their heart. They will call me their God and I will call them my children. We are living in that age. If you are a believer of Jesus Christ, if you have bowed your will before Him, if you've accepted Him as your Savior, you have repented of your sins, you have recognized all the things you need to recognize, done everything that you know how to do, which is not a whole lot, and God has done everything He's promised to do. He says, if you if you seek repentance, He will He will forgive. If you beg for forgiveness, He will forgive. If you draw closer to Him, He will draw closer to you. These are promises in there. But when He covenantally writes His name on your heart, you belong to Him. And let me tell you something. You don't want God to give you a real divorce. So don't give Him reason to. That's the other side of it. You know, and, and it goes both ways. It goes both ways. You know, if for every time that I have somebody come to my office and say, Pastor, I just want to leave this person because they, you don't know what it's like to live with them. You're right, I don't. But I also know I don't know what it's like to live with you. And there are two sides of every story. And I guarantee if I had the other person in my office, they would have a similar story of woe and frustration. You know, I'm not easy to live with. My wife would be the first one to tell you that. And the second person to tell you that would be God. Because I know that I don't do everything God wants me to do. And He makes me aware of it. Sometimes He lets me go. Sometimes He'll let me continue on. But what God really wants, He wants that joyful acceptance. My parents, and it's, maybe it's easier for your parents to understand this, don't you just love it when you have those moments of clarity with your children? When you don't prompt them and they do the right thing in front of you? I was talking to one of our church members this week and they were telling me how their kids were, were, were acting up. And one of their kids decided to display a moment of, 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 of just profoundness. And the kid's like, hey guys, dad asked us to do something. Stop griping about it. Let's just get it done so we don't have to worry about it anymore. And that came from the mouth of one of the children, right? To the other children. When those moments happen, it's like the heavens part and the angels sing and everything is right in the world for like 10 seconds because your kids have finally gotten, or at least one of them did, right? We want that. Well, God wants the same thing for us. When that, when that, when that moment happens where, where the clouds part and we have sudden clarity, like what we're having right now, God's forcing this upon us. He's allowing us to be separate so that we can focus on what really matters. It's not the color of the walls or the carpet. It's not whether or not I'm wearing a shirt and tie, whether or not I, I have uh, prettiness or, or good hair or straight teeth. And my teeth better be straight. It costs me a lot of money. And so, you know, it's not about those things. It's about our hearts. A broken, a broken heart, a contrite spirit. These are the things that please the Lord. This is what He wants from us. Look what it says. Gather the people. Sanctify the congregation. And this is the other, this is the final thing, right? We've talked about responding not with fear, but with faith. We've talked about a, uh, an authentic repentance. And not just as a church, I think as a, as a, as a body of believers that go beyond just First Baptist Kenai. All throughout this nation, we as Christians, we need to repent. Too long we have allowed the culture to dictate who we are. For too long we have allowed the culture to drive the conversation and we have just meekly capitulated and we have, we have changed the word where it says blessed are the meek and to, to blessed are the doormats in our own minds. And we've allowed the, the world to walk all over us 
without standing up for what we believe because we have fear. And that's not what God is trying to say. And so this, I think, is coming out to the pastors and the preachers and the lay leaders and the Sunday school teachers. We need to stop presenting milk as meat. And we need to, we need to demand that God will use us with the kind of boldness that He wants to. You say, well, how do we know that this is referring to us as preachers, right? Look what it says down in verse 16. Gather the assembly. That's you guys. Gather the congregation. That's you guys. Assemble the elders. Well, that's a smaller group. And it goes even further. It says, um, gather the children, the nursing infants. Let the, let the brides and the bridegrooms come together. This is all the people. But here in verse 17 is when it really nails it down. Let the priests and the Lord's ministers weep between the porch and the altar. And so I know some of you say, well, I'm not a preacher, so I'm not a pastor. I don't need to, I don't need to hear this part. Well, maybe you don't. But you know pastors that do. And so this part of this, this message, I just want to say to any pastor that might be listening to this, and I listen to sermons all the time, I try to get other takes. Now, so maybe you are too. Are you, pre, are, you, are you praying for your people? Are you weeping for this nation? Are we prayerfully taking and being that intercessor between the altar and the door for those that need it the most? That's a powerful statement. Because if you call yourself a minister of the Lord, and I know I was saying, okay, we're talking about preachers here, and I was lying to sit back, yeah, there it is. Pastor Al, you need to step the game up. You ain't praying enough. You ain't you ain't ministering enough. Well, yeah, if it was just me. But the beautiful thing is, the beautiful thing is, is that we have the New Testament to give us greater clarity. And we've been talking a lot about Peter. And if you go right over to the book of Peter, and I I just encourage you to Google it, encourage you to look it up. Peter says that we are all ministers. There's a priesthood of believers. If you've accepted Christ as your Savior, you are considered part of the priesthood. It's your job also to pray for this nation. So church, are we doing it? Are we weeping between the altar and the porch? Are we begging the Lord to spare your people, like the prophet says in verse 17? Oh Lord, do not take your inheritance. Do not make your inheritance a reproach. Do not make your people a byword among nations. Why should they, among the nation of people, say, where is their God? We should never, ever say that. In times like this, we ought to be able to rise up on our knees and demand that the Spirit of God move through us. We say, to make demands of God? He wants us to. He's begging us to pray. It's almost as though his ministering spirits, his, his, his own personality is, is just sitting there waiting for us to move, straining. He just wants us to pray. Now, are you saying, God, are you saying that, that, that man controls God? No, I'm not saying that. Are you saying that our prayers in some way force God's hand? No, I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is for whatever reason, and I didn't make the rules, Right? I'm not making the rules here. God did that. For whatever reason, God chose, God chose to use you and me as his agents of change in this world. He's allowing us the opportunity to do that. But the same respect, he holds the he holds the whole uh, the whole reign of sovereignty in his hands. He is divine. He knows where he is moving this great train. Now, I know our time is marching on, and we don't want to spend all of our time doing this. And honestly, I could, there, there are like 10 or 15 sermons I can pull out of this chapter. But I wanted to move on um, as we go through this. And you'll see, as you're reading through it, the response that God gives in verses 18 through um, uh, beyond. You'll see that God is, is speaking. You see in verse 21, He said, Do not fear, O land. Rejoice and be glad, for the Lord has done great things in your midst. He's talking about the fields, uh, the beasts of the field, the pastures in the wilderness. He's saying all these great things. He says in verse 23, Rejoice, O sons of Zion. Isn't that a beautiful statement that God is telling us to be happy, to not fear, to be focused on what He's called us to do? He says that there's going to come a day when things are going to happen where I'm going to begin pouring down my Spirit on you. You see that in verses 23 where He says that He has poured down on you the rain. The early and the latter rain as before. Now I know some people say, well, you're getting in a weird theological place. You have to understand what the, what the early and the latter rain is. And this is not talking about 
Uh, this, remember, metaphor, simile, allegory. We're not talking about weird denominational differences here. We're just talking about in an agricultural society that was based on crops growing, they had two big rainy seasons. They had the spring and they had the fall. And they had, a, they had an early rain that happened in the beginning when the crops needed the water. And they had a, a later rain that came later for that second planting um, so they could give more uh, crops in the storehouse. And so he's talking about the early and the latter, the first and the second great rainy seasons in the area is what he's referring to. And he's talking about the threshing floors will be full. And he says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make up for all the time that the, the Lord, the locusts came. So I'm saying that when we do get back together, we may not get to, it may never be the way it was. But it doesn't mean that it's not going to be great. We'll always have a memory of what went beyond. We'll always remember this dark time in our history where we were not able to worship together as a group. But we're going to move into something that's going to be better and greater. But we have to respond appropriately. My thoughts turn to Job. Job lost his sons. He lost his daughters. He lost his he all his livelihood, all his stock, and everything else that he had. His money was stripped away from him. All he had was his body and his soul and his God. And when all that was stripped away, you know, God came to him and focused on him. In the end, after the wrangling and the wrestling and the, and the struggle that he had, God finally healed him and blessed him. And he was able to receive his children again. He was able to receive his crops again. He said, well, that's great. God gave all the kids again. I love my kids. And if I lost all four of them, five of them, and God gave me five new kids, it'd be nice. But I wouldn't replace the ones I lost. I'd still have that, that sadness for what was taken. We will still have the sadness, but there's a proper way to grieve through it and move to that other side as we seek to see where God wants us to move. And look what it says, this promise of this future deliverance. Look what it says in verse 28. He says, it will come about after this. This is the part that was, that was quoted by Peter. So it will come about after this that I will pour out my spirit on all mankind. On your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on the male servants and the female servants, I will pour out my spirit on those days. And I will display wonders in the sky and on the earth. Blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness. The moon into blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it will come about, and whoever calls the name of the Lord will be delivered from on Mount Zion in Jerusalem. There will be those who will escape, as the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. It's a powerful promise of future deliverance. In the Hebrew Bible, verses 28 through 32 is its own chapter. That's where chapter 3 comes from in the Hebrew Bible. The same passages, we just changed the way that the format is. And, and the Hebrews wanted to have this particular passage its own chapter. And I understand it. I'd love to have that as my own chapter too. To be able just to look at that. It will come about that I will pour my spirit and look at the totality of mankind. Sons and daughters, old men, young men, servants, male and female. I get a lot of people that, that, that have great consternation over whether or not there should be, we should allow women in ministry. And I'm not going to go into that discussion here, but it's obvious to me that God is already having that minor discussion right here. He loves to throw the controversy in there to make us, make us question what we do and why we do it. Look what he says there. Sons and daughters will prophesy. Old men will dream dreams. Men, our elders, are we dreaming dreams? You say, well, what's the significance about an old man dreaming? You know, when young men dream, it's nice. When old men dream, it's a tragedy. Think about it. My body is not like it used to be. I remember when I first moved here um, to the great state of Alaska, we were going to do a, a Yukon float trip. A float trip down the Yukon River. And I'm thinking to myself, in my mind I have visions of Tom Sawyer and Hawk Finn lazily moving down the river, enjoying God's country, just enjoying the scenery and life in an idyllic setting as you just have that big old rudder. And I, was, I talked to the guys and I said, yeah, I'm going I'm to build my own raft. 
I'm gonna bring some. I'm gonna bring some pallets and and some 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 barrels up there to to circle Alaska or chicken Alaska. I think we're at chicken. And and um, we're gonna go up to this place and we're gonna put into the Yukon up there, okay? And I was gonna build my raft on the shore, you know, like Tom Sawyer and Huck Finn. And I was gonna and I had one of our great elders came in and he said, Pastor, that's a great dream, but please don't do that. If you do, you will die. And I'm like. What do you mean, God? It's just a river. He goes, no, it's not. It's the Yukon. This isn't the Mississippi. This isn't some lazy river. And I'm like, oh, I didn't know that. And so, you know, it's fun when you have dreams and you're young and you feel strong enough to survive. But when you get older and wisdom starts to set in and you start to have less dreams because you've accomplished most of them. And so an old man has a dream of something he wants to see come to focus. It's, it's, it, he knows he has less time to accomplish it. So when the God says that his spirit will come down and the old men will dream dreams, the young men will begin to see visions, it's a scary thing. And I don't believe in 21st century America. And if I told you I'm having a vision on something, you guys are just going to automatically write it off. Oh, just pastor being pastor, right? Or he's just being silly. Oh, he went to another seminar about vision casting. We're going to have to sit through this for another few weeks until he gets tired of it. But that's not what he's talking about here. There are, there are places in this world where God still goes to young men in dreams and visions. Where he's still, he's still actively taking a presence. I have heard missionaries that have gone on the field, that have landed in remote areas. And as soon as they set up off the plane, they were approached by a local national and said, are you so-and-so? Yes, I am. God sent me to speak with you because you have the answers I'm seeking. Tell me, what is the answer to a question I don't even know that I have? There are visions that are going throughout our world. And when we automatically discount those, we are not following God's word. These visions are going to pour out. The Spirit is going to move. You say, well, that's great for the Old Testament. That's great for that time. But what, what do we do for the New Testament? I want to encourage you. We're going to close here in a moment. But I want you to turn with me, if you will, to the book of 2 Corinthians. We're going to listen to the Apostle Paul. Paul has some wonderful things to the Corinthians, and I'm very glad that I was not a member of the Corinthian church. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. The Corinthian church had lots of issues, friends. But even through their lots of frustrations, the Spirit of God still moved through them. Look what it says in verse 12. Chapter 2, 2 Corinthians. Now when I came to Troas for the gospel of Christ, and when a door was opened for me in the Lord, I had no rest in my spirit. And not finding Titus, my brother, but taking my leave of them, I went to Macedonia. Okay, we get a little bit of travel law. He's telling us what's happening. There's a restlessness in his spirit. He wants to move because he has the gospel he wants to bring, and he can't quite deliver it the way it's supposed to be delivered because the Lord is pressing on him. You ever had that? In your soul? Have you ever had the Lord just press so powerfully on you that you can't, you can't, you can't, can't take, you can't take rest? Look what he says in verse 13. I had no rest for my spirit. The message was too much. Look what it says in verse 14. But thanks be to God who always leads us through in triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of Him in every place. Look what it says, church. We are to be the aroma of God. That's not the stink of God. It's the aroma of God. We're not supposed to be smelly Christians. We're supposed to be aromatic Christians. For we are the fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one to, to the one an aroma of death to death, to another an aroma of life to life. And who is adequate for these things? For we are not like many, peddling, peddling, selling the word of God, but as from sincerity, but as from God, 
we speak in Christ in the sight of God. My friends, we are to be the fragrant aroma of God to the people that need it the most. In this time when the government is trying to close the churches and, and there's an assault on what we consider our constitutional rights, I'm going to tell you right now, it's now more than ever we need to be the aroma of God. We need to be the very fragrance of God. The people that need the message the most are the ones that are the most afraid. The world needs the church now more than ever. We are essential. We are important. Not because of ourselves, but because of what Jesus Christ did in us, through us. And so, I'm telling you this now. If you're sitting there and you don't know Jesus Christ, your personal Savior, if you've never accepted Him, you can. We're coming to a place in this service where we're going to come to an end. We're not going to have any fancy songs. We're not going to do any cliff divers off of our baptistry. We're not going to have any more bells and whistles because all that's stripped away, right? We don't have any of that fancy frou-frou stuff anymore. We just have a camera, me, you, and a little bit of music. And it's going to be coming upon you. If you want to know more about Jesus Christ, you are going to actively call, have to actively call someone. I'm going to tell you this now. If you, I, I know this. I've said it before in other videos. I promise you this. If you're watching this video, then you have a friend somewhere that's been praying for you. And you probably know who they are. And if you know who that person is, and you want to know who Jesus Christ is and can be in your life, I can promise you this. You should call them. You don't need a vision. You don't need a dream. You just need to call them. If it's me, if I'm the one that's been praying for you, call me. Not now. In a little while. But I guarantee you that we will come together and we can, and we can show you what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. We'll put a link up in our, in our Facebook post uh, of how to, to know Jesus Christ your Savior. But don't rely on that. Call. Talk to somebody. Message somebody. Get connected to somebody through the digital world and find the answer. Because Jesus wants to save you today. For the rest of us, the message that comes from Joel is an apt and timely message. The enemy may be large in our sight, but our God is stronger still. And our response should be threefold. We should not fear, but have faith. We should have an authentic repentance. And then here's the final one. I didn't mention this before because I want to close with it. We need to, after we have, we respond without fear, but with faith, we have an authentic repentance. When we lay our hearts before God, we should expect a response. How many times do we pray and we just walk away? We should pray believing, as the apostles say in the New Testament. Pray expecting. We should expect a response from our God because His army is mightier than the enemy's. And I can promise you, salvation is only a prayer way. Let's go ahead and pray, and we're going to close. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the day you've given us. We thank you for the opportunity to be here. Lord, if there's anyone in here that's listening to the sound of my voice, whether video or whatever, Lord, I just ask that you will um, bless them, that you'll protect them, and you'll bring them closer to you. If they don't know you, Lord, I just ask that you'll give them the opportunity to come to know you as their Savior. If they do, Father, I ask that they're empowered, emboldened, and, and encouraged to bring your message to a world that needs it the most. Lord, we love you. We thank you. We ask this now in the name of your Son and our precious and amazing Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.